Um, right, we're going to start today with a competition. This is a real, actual one-pound coin, freshly minted in Llantrisland in South Wales, and legal tender in the United Kingdom. And it is yours to the first person who can answer this question. Without Googling it, without getting your phones out, does anyone know who this man is? Remember, there's an entire pound up for this. So think really carefully. I'm going to give you five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Back in my pocket. Um, This is Chris Lynch. You know, Chris Lynch. Who doesn't know who Chris Lynch is? I'll be honest, until 36 hours ago, I had no idea who Chris Lynch was either. Um, On Friday night, I was in the Premier Inn in Durham East on an industrial estate just outside Durham. Um, It's a great way to spend a weekend. I was at the Community Money Advice Annual Conference. They're the kind of parent organisation that um, look after our debt advice centre. And for some unknown reason, they decided that it was a great idea to have a national conference from which people would be coming from around the UK in Durham. Um, Anyway, so that's where I was for the weekend, and I was writing this talk on the Friday night. Again, such a great way to spend a weekend. Please don't envy my rock and roll lifestyle. Um, But I was in this hotel room, and in the background, I was watching um, Salford City against Notts County in the first round of the FA Cup. It was, you know, a high-profile glamour tie. Um, For the benefit of Roe, that is not a high-profile glamour tie. That's just... um, And halfway through this game... The commentator started talking about this guy. Um, Chris Lynch is the captain uh, of Salford City. They are a semi-professional team. All their players are, are amateurs. They play in the seventh tier of English football, which means they're not all that great. Anyway, Chris Lynch is a gas bottle engineer. What he does for a living is he fills up gas bottles, and he works, uh, according to the commentator, permanent nights, which means he only ever works night shifts. So if Salford have a game in the evening, apparently it's not uncommon for the final whistle to be blown and then Chris Lynch to run off to the dressing rooms, dive in the shower, run through the shower and jump in the car before most of the other players are off the pitch because he's got to get to work. And sometimes if they play an away game on a Saturday afternoon and it's at a team that are a long way away, he has to come straight from work on the Friday night. He drives straight from work to the Salford City ground, jumps on the team bus, has a couple of hours sleep in the bus and then captains the team on the Saturday afternoon. And when the commentator had pointed this out, the co-commentator said, that's why he's the captain. He's the example that the other players look up to. And I thought, that's good, isn't it? Because I'm preaching on examples on Sunday. And to be honest, if I wasn't at a Premier Inn in Durham, I probably wouldn't have been watching Salford City against Notts County, so maybe it does all work out. Um, we're looking at different views on the death of Jesus. We're looking at how humans can be reconciled to God and what that means for us. And I've been asked to look at the exemplar theory, which is also known as the moral influence theory, which looks at the example of Jesus' life and how that means that we can be reconciled to God. Um, I, whilst thinking about uh, Chris Lynch, uh, I captained a a lot of football teams uh, over the years before I got too old. And um, I was thinking, was there an example that I could think of where, you know, where I was setting an example? And 
Sadly, the first example that popped into my head is one that doesn't exactly paint me in such a good light as Chris Lynch, but, you know, in the uh, vein of accountability and openness, I thought I would share it all with you this morning anyway. Um, Very quickly, when I was back in Wales, I used to play against quite a lot of terrible teams from a lot of terrible villages around the kind of Neath and Swansea valleys, and there was one team in particular that the captain was about seven foot tall and about seven foot wide, and he was one of those kind of brutal that you only really get in amateur football. You always get in amateur football. He didn't really have any ability. He just spent the entire hour and a half just wandering around the pitch, kicking people and intimidating the opposition. Everyone in the league knew him and everyone knew his reputation. Um, and so when I took over the captaincy of this team, um, the week before this game, I thought you know, long and hard, how are we going to stop him? Because he did have quite an influence on games just by the fact that he used to scare lots of people by looking like he was going to kill them most of the time, to be honest. And so I successfully engineered a plan. I thought long and hard, and I thought, you know what? Simple is definitely best. So the game kicked off. Within about 30 seconds, I found myself in such a position I was close enough to him, and what I did was I kicked him up in the air as hard as I possibly could. Kicked him about three foot up in the air, and he landed, and as he landed on the floor, I looked at him and I went... Nothing to worry about here, lads. And then turned around and walked away. And we won 2-0. Um, it's not quite the example that Chris Lynch is setting, is it? But if I'm absolutely honest, it's probably more fun. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, enough about football. We should move on and actually talk about theology, shouldn't we? So what is the moral influence theory of atonement all about? It was mainly developed by this guy who's a French philosopher from the 11th century, Peter Abelard. He has quite the interesting biography. Um, he was born in 1079 into a noble family in France, and when he was a teenager, left home to travel around France to try and find someone who was clever enough to teach him something about philosophy. Um, struggling to find anyone, he came to Paris and at 21 enrolled in the Notre Dame Cathedral School, which was deemed to be the best place to study philosophy. He went in there, um, he debated with his lecturers, and about a week after starting there, he left because he realized that there was no one in the Notre Dame Cathedral School who was as intelligent as he was. So he left, uh, he left Paris, he set up his own school of philosophy, bearing in mind he's 21 at the time, he set up his own school of philosophy just outside Paris, and people flocked to it. Um, he ran this for about a decade, and at this point was generally acknowledged to be the best philosopher in Paris. This is what I read anyway. I mean, I have absolutely no idea how you work out who is the best philosopher in Paris or any other city. What do you do, get 16 of them together for a knockout competition? I have absolutely no idea. But anyway, this is what the books say. Um, At this point, he wanted to go back to Notre Dame, but this time as a lecturer. But um, some people who were lecturing there already in philosophy didn't like this idea, and they made sure that he didn't get a job there. Um, Given that it was about a decade since he wandered in there, decided he was cleverer than everyone, and waltzed out again, I can imagine why some people might be a little annoyed with him. So... He moves to northern France, where he starts studying theology. Obviously, he's brilliant at it. Eventually, he moves back to Paris to get his job at Notre Dame, but this time studying theology, uh, teaching theology and not philosophy. Um, At this point, it looks like the story's going to go well for him. He's got the dream job. He is where he is. But then it's actually at this point where everything starts to go a bit bad. He started a relationship with uh, a girl called Eloise d'Argentile, 
if my French is anywhere near accurate. Um, She was not only one of his students, but she was the niece of the canon of Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, Listen to this, written by Peter at the time. No degree in love's progress was left untried by our passion. And if love itself could imagine any wonder as yet unknown, we discovered it. And our inexperience of such delights made us all the more ardent in our pursuit of them. So that our thirst for one another was still unquenched. Wow. It's a good job the kids have left, isn't it? (laughs) Unsurprisingly, Eloise fell pregnant soon after he wrote these words. Um, She and Peter married in secret... Uh, And then she moved to a convent and the child was given to Peter's family to raise. They thought they'd kind of get away with it if they did that. Turns out they didn't. Um, The canon of Notre Dame found out about all of this. Eloise's uncle, don't forget. And, And this is the point where those of you with sensitive stomachs might want to do this. But he sent some men into Abelard's room and castrated him and chucked him out of the college. So, um, (laughs) I told you it was quite the biography, didn't I? So, he becomes a monk, he moves to a monastery, but he loves teaching so much that he tries to come back into the public sphere to carry on teaching philosophy and theology. Unfortunately, no one will give him a job, and so he ends up living in the woods outside Paris and then coming in to do these public lectures. But his reputation is such that students would flock to the woods, they'd camp out with him just to hear him talk about philosophy and theology. Um, he continued to cause trouble, and a few years later wrote a book that was translated as A Theology of the Supreme Good, which led him to be condemned as a heretic, and he was made to throw the offending book into a fire. Um, This might sound ridiculous, but it was 900 years ago. I mean, I certainly can't imagine in these days that anyone could be condemned as a heretic for writing a book about atonement theory or Christianity, can you? Steve? No? No, no. I mean, obviously ridiculous. Um, So Abelard, to end a very long story, continued to be harassed and eventually he appealed to the Pope for help. The Pope then promptly excommunicated him. He was taken in by Peter the Venerable, an abbot of the monastery, and he lived there until he died at age 63. It is said that the last words of Peter Abelard, this genius philosopher, theologian, author, and academic were as follows. I don't know. Um, it's an amazing story, but we are here to talk about what he actually talked about. What did he teach about the cross? What was it that he wrote that got him into so much trouble? Well, he was writing a commentary on the book of Romans uh, when, like many before and many after, he answered this question. Why did Jesus die? We're going to look at it really quickly. There are three quick points to consider. Uh, The first thing to note is that Peter Abelard interprets everything written in Romans through the lens of God's love. His starting point, which is crucial when you consider this theory against some of the other theories of atonement, like penal substitution that Steve touched on last week, or the satisfaction theory, which was popular at the time. His starting point is about God's love and not God's anger. So this leads him to take aim at the prevalent atonement theories of the day. Um, For example, he doesn't agree with the concept of original sin, because he's coming from this starting point of God's love. So he complains about the satisfaction theory, which uses original sin as a starting point. Abelard says, how can God punish a human so harshly for eating an apple, as he does with Adam, but then basically let humans off for crucifying his son? 
And isn't it a bit weird that anyone, God or anyone else, should demand the blood of an innocent man if he didn't have to? And isn't it a bit weird that someone would find the death of an innocent man, in Abelard's words, so agreeable that by it God should be reconciled to the world? How does that work? So Abelard moves on to his third point, which is his solution to all of this. He says this, God took on human nature and even bore death in order to more fully bind himself to us. The result should be that when we grasp what God has done for us, we should be set on fire with love for God and desire nothing more than to devote our lives to following him. Uh, An author, Tony Jones, puts it this way. Jesus' death on the cross arouses us from our slumber, awakens us to the love God has for us and drives us to love God and one another more fervently. Jesus' death on the cross arouses us from our slumber, awakens us to the love God has for us and drives us to love God and one another more fervently. This is what Abelard talked about. To prove his point, he talks about the story that Sarah read to us earlier from Luke chapter 7. Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee and a woman who had lived a sinful life, as the NIV puts it, which obviously distinguishes her greatly from the rest of humanity, particularly me. Um, anyway, this woman anoints Jesus' feet and he forgives her sins. But and this is the important bit as far as Abelard is concerned. Jesus makes a link between the woman's love for him and her forgiveness. The fact that Jesus forgives her there and then is also crucial. It shows Abelard that forgiveness exists before the crucifixion. Let's look again at verses 44 to 47. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Her love for Jesus was directly related to her forgiveness. One more great quote from Tony Jones. No relation, honest. Um, It's Jesus' example of humility and sacrificial love to the point of death that catalyzes our own love and activates forgiveness. Jesus' death doesn't just point the way to selfless moral living. It actually draws us into a life of love and forgiveness that is the ultimate overwhelming response to the crucifixion. Jesus' death activates a supernatural love that transcends any earthly love. This version of the atonement theory says that Christ is the ultimate example and out of the love that he showed for us, We are called to respond by following that example. I love that quote. I think it's amazing. But here's the problem. In the real day-to-day world, this has the potential to sound a bit boring, doesn't it? It has the potential to be a difficult thing, not a releasing, freeing thing. Trying to live your life following an example can be hard work. 
Um, my parents moved house when I was young, and I've got an older sister, and because of when they moved house, I never went to the same school as her until I was 14, and I went to Ebervale Senior Comprehensive School. Uh, my sister, Rach, is four and a half years older than me, and so she had left by the time that I started there and gone to university. Now, the problem that I had with going to Ebervale Senior Comp is that my sister was the model student. She got fantastic grades, she was in the school dance club, she was in the school orchestra, she did everything on time, she was super organised, she was amazing. And me, not so much. Homework was, shall we say, never my forte. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that my proudest achievement uh, throughout the whole of secondary school was the day when I threw my first 180 on the dartboard in the school common room. Um, So for me, having an example to follow was a pressure. It wasn't a good thing. It was actually a negative thing. It wasn't an inspiration. The worst teacher for this was Mrs. Daniels, who taught me French and had previously taught my sister GCSE and A-level French. Um... Every time that I didn't do my homework, she would be able somehow to reel off the list of homework assignments that I hadn't done or had given in late. And she would never fail to end by saying something like, your sister was never like this. Your sister always gave her homework in on time. Following an example can be difficult, can't it? It can drain life from you sometimes, rather than encouraging and inspiring you, which is the aim here. That can be the way, actually, that some people look at this explanation of the cross, the example of Jesus. Actually, it's just a a difficult thing that we can't live up to, and so it just heaps more pressure on you. But it wasn't meant to be this way. This is how theologian Daniel Migliore describes this theory. Christ shows God's love to us in such a compelling way that we are constrained to respond in wonder and gratitude. It's compelling. It shouldn't be a legalistic, difficult thing. We should be compelled to respond, as Miliore puts it, in wonder and gratitude. Because Jesus' example isn't one of legalism. Jesus' example is one of revolution. It's a radical example. A little bit of history for us. By the time that Jesus was born, the Jewish people had been under foreign occupation for about 600 years. And the current occupiers, the Romans, were probably the worst of all of them. For generation after generation after generation, the Jewish people had revolted against their oppressors. There had been riots, there had been uprisings, and what we would now call civil war. And every time the Jews had failed. Every time the Jews had failed to take control of their land. An example. There's a Jewish historian who tells the story of one of these uprisings four years before Jesus is born. In response to this uprising, to make sure that the Jews knew their place, the Romans retaliated with force. A Roman general, General Varus, burned down entire towns and crucified thousands, up to 2,000 people at any one time. Another general, General Titus, killed up to 500 Jews every day. This historian said that he killed so many that space could not be found for the crosses, nor enough crosses for the bodies. This is what Jesus was born into. But the thing about this is that what the Jewish people 
would have thought from reading their scriptures was that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be a political savior, someone who would come and force the Romans off their land, and also a military warrior, someone who would help them to claim the Holy Land as their land, their promised land, under no foreign rule. And what does Jesus do? What does the creator of the world do? He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He finds a load of manual laborers, failed rabbis, and he wanders around the country telling stories that hint at some kind of revolution. But he refuses to lift a sword or countenance any kind of physical violence towards the Romans. Eventually, his words get him into trouble with the authorities. He gets taken on trial, and he refuses to say anything. So he's found guilty, and like so many others, he's hung on a cross until he dies. And even if you believe the stories about a resurrection... He doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't save the Jewish people. He just ascends into heaven, apparently. Some kind of example, eh? Well, actually, yeah. Actually, probably the best kind of example. It's a countercultural example. It's a radical example. I'd say it's a revolutionary example. He tells his followers to love their enemies... He tells them to turn the other cheek, give away their shirt, walk an extra mile. He gets angry at the moneylenders in the temple courts and he turns their tables over. He heals people on the Sabbath because doing the work of the Lord is more important than following the law. He says that the poor in spirit are blessed, that those who mourn are blessed, the meek are blessed, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the peacemakers when the Jewish people were expecting a military warrior. Brian McLaren says this, What if Jesus' secret message reveals a secret plan? What if he didn't come to start a new religion, but rather came to start a political, social, religious, artistic, economic, intellectual, and spiritual revolution that would give birth to a new world? Does that sound like the kind of example you could follow? The example of Jesus calls us to be radical. What does that mean for us? How can we be radical? One more story from the Bible. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas, who are two of the leaders of the early church, are telling the people about the example of Jesus. And some Jewish people didn't take too kindly to this. They got a mob together and they went looking for Paul and Silas. Now, Paul and Silas had been staying at the house of a guy called Jason and the mob went there, but they were too late. When they got there, Paul and Silas had moved on. When they failed to find them, they dragged Jason. This mob dragged Jason to the city authorities and they threw him in front of the authorities and they shouted to the authorities in verse 6 of chapter 17. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. These people who have been turning the world upside down. The followers of Jesus' example were turning the world upside down. So we're going to end, and as we finish, I just encourage us all to just spend a couple of minutes thinking about our response. What does it mean for us now, today, to live in the radical example of Christ's love? Does it mean being radical with our relationships? Could we be more honest? Could we be more accountable? One of the struggles that I've often had with small groups over the years is that they're meant to be a place where you are open and honest and accountable. But if I'm absolutely honest, in lots of the small groups that I've been in over the years, I'll kind of give enough 
and it looks like I'm being honest and open, but I'm actually keeping the real stuff back. That's not the radical example. That's not what Jesus calls me to. It doesn't have to be small groups, does it? Maybe once every now and again we could start a conversation with someone and ask how they really are, rather than just asking how their day's been in work or what they thought of the X Factor. Maybe we'll need to be more accessible to people if we do this. Maybe we will need to spend more time with people, do the things that are difficult. Maybe we need to be more radical with our time in general. That could be what we do with our time outside of work. Or it could mean working fewer hours so you've got more time to do something more radical. Or it could mean something entirely radical. It could mean checking in your job and going and doing something else. I'm not saying that's the example that you have to follow. But if we are called to live radically and called to follow the example of Jesus, these are the things we have to think about. Does it mean being radical with our housing? We know this is a massive issue, don't we, in central London? What does a radical solution to the housing issue in central London look like? Does it mean if you've got a spare room giving it to somebody who can't afford it? Does it mean if you have got some money going in with five other people who have some money and buying a big house and living in community together? You know, there are examples of that in Acts. What does it mean to be radical? Does it mean being radical with our money? I've been reading a lot recently about congregational giving for an assignment that I've had to do as part of my master's. And I've read what a lot of theologians think about tithing, this idea of giving 10% of your income to the church. And um, I'm sure you'll be glad to know that um, I couldn't find a single theologian who agreed with the principle of tithing. Unfortunately, they all say that for most of us, we should probably be giving a lot more. How are we radical in response to this radical message? Christ shows God's love to us in such a compelling way that we are constrained to respond radically in wonder and gratitude. How are you going to respond?